Oh. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. It's, I'm so sorry. You ca you carry on. You were going to do your thing. Bring us a fact bank. That's a fact bank. Now I'm embarrassed with my fact bang. No, don't be. Come on. Okay. If it's about Mamba's feet, I will come to your house and kill you. <laughs> Wait, what did you say? If it's about Mamba's feet. <laughs> it's not about his feet. Oh, my God. <laughs> Is it about a different part of Mamba? It's about Mamba in totality. Okay. What is it? <laughs> well, now I feel now I feel like you don't want to hear it. No, I do want to hear it. I do want <laughs> the record to show that it is not a fact bang, but please continue. So it is factually accurate. Okay. <sighs> so the Mamba came from the American Humane Society and they charge like $175 for a kitten, which he technically was when I got him. But I was sneaky and I knew I wanted him. And so I checked their calendar for the cats and saw that he was being moved to the PetSmart the next week. So I went and I intercepted him at PetSmart and I only had to pay $20 for him. And the fact part about it is that at that time, because they always give them other dumb names, his name was Cooper, which is really embarrassing. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to call him that now. You know, you're not you're not allowed to call him Cooper. The fact of your story was that Mamba's <laughs> name used to be different. It used to be Cooper, and I thought this would be a good opportunity for you to tell us what your animals' dumb names were before you got to name them. Potato Chip's name was Makuba. <laughs> Excuse me. I'm not even lying. What? Yeah, that's his his puppy name was Makuba. So not like McGruber, like the SNL skit, like no. Whatever okay. a Makuba is. Is that a name from a specific, like, culture? I'm finding out as, I'm finding out live. Hang on. Is it M-A-K-U-B-A? That's correct. Oh, here's a Yu-Gi-Oh character. In a 1967 film called The Treasure of Makuba. And that. That was about Polynesian pearls. So a lot's going on. There's a lot, anyway. Okay, I'm going to start the episode now. That's probably for the best. To what it is the part documentary, part competition podcast featuring me. As always, I'm Melly Main, and I'm the host. And with me, as I have every week, is Chelsea Half Bush. Chelsea, what's going on? Well, 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 well. Oh, I'm feeling <laughs> good. Like I sailed the high seas with you earlier. We did some I sailing. Ate some chicken nuggies. No, oh, don't remind me about the chicken nuggies. Whipped. Well, my chicken nuggies were chicky free. They were, I guess, technically little veggie nuggies. Chelsea, would you like to introduce our guest of the evening? Oh my god, I would. Or of the episode, uh, I should say. He is a future podcaster and present lover of a podcaster. That's right. <laughs> Returning champion, fan favorite, crowd cutie, Connor, aka Cono, aka Conmore, aka Condo. <laughs> hey, it's, hey, how's it going? It's me. <laughs> Oh my gosh, what a, what a juxtaposition between the hype up and the entrance. <laughs> hey guys, how's it going? Yeah, that is me. All those things are true. You gotta flip it on them. Connor, what is your yeah. podcast about? Your future podcast? Well, okay, so I am entering my third decade. Sure. And like all white men, I have to pick like a, an annoying like hobby. Right, right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> as I enter my, my middle years. Sure. And I settled on local history. Okay. Um, That's all right. true. It's so true. <laughs> so that, like in a major way? My name is Connor, and I'm here to say that I'm going to get into local history in a major way, yes. So, that's, so the podcast is about local history, a.k.a. Austin history? Uh, yes. Nice. Okay, cool. Two things. One, Connor, I'm going to throw you a question, but it's like a softball so that you can talk about it a little bit. Mm -hmm. One, is this one of those like... I love you so much. Hashtag keep Austin weird. Like this is why you should move to Austin. It's the greatest place in the world. Podcasts. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> this was so easy. <laughs> Wait, you invited me on here because you said I could talk about the polo I found at Goodwill today. I didn't. That's true. <laughs> 
He didn't That's say true, anything about I had to talk about my podcast. Because this is like Connor's thing now, apparently. Our house is full of these books about like Central Texas. And right. my favorite thing about them is that they either have the most boring fucking like title ever or just like the most like batshit like <laughs> unexpected title. It'll just be called Central Texas on Austin trees in texas and i'm like jesus christ and then the fourth one will just be called like their eyes saw god from the reflection of the river and you're like wait what (laughs) one of these things is not like the others you just go up to the people at book people and you're like i want you to frighten me i've never met somebody in my life who reads more who enjoys it less Just wait, hang on. You just don't like the process of reading or just what you're reading? Uh, it really depends. I mean, some of them are a slog to get through. Yeah, there's a lot of like very boring history out there. And I look forward to contributing to that great tradition. Um, Chelsea, do you have five fun fast facts? In this case, I am going to throw it over to our guests to give you not five fun fast facts, but fu- uh, two fun fashion facts. Two fun fashion facts. Is this about the polo shirt? One's about the polo shirt and (laughs) one's about starch jeans. Starch jeans. Oh, okay, yeah. We talked about this. We prepared. (laughs) I don't remember this thing about... (laughs) Okay, I'll do it. Ellie, do you know about starch jeans? Are you on starch jeans TikTok? Oh, certainly not. No. Okay, so there's a there's a great tradition in like the I I think predominantly the Southwest in America. I've only ever really seen it as a thing in Texas. I think it's crept into like the Deep South as well a little bit, but it's like kind of associated more with like cowboy culture, and it's like when you just like starch your jeans like to hell. You can go on starch jeans TikTok and you can see like these good old boys. Who like has starched their jeans to the point where like they can just stand up on their own and like it looks like a ghost in like the middle of their laundry room. Why? Yeah. I mean, a what? I mean, what actually is to starch a jean? How does one starch a jean? And- so I'm so glad you asked. Okay, great. Be- because I didn't know either. I just knew this was a thing that people did that it makes your jeans really stiff and that like that's like that's like a vibe, right? Like if you're kind of like a country, like if country is your aesthetic, yeah. then you want those real starch jeans that are just crisp as fuck and like super stiff and so uncomfortable, um, surely. Uh, probably, but I can't. I can't judge that. Half of the shit that I love to wear is very uncomfortable. Okay. So sure. here, I'm gonna send a, a picture. I'm gonna try to send a picture to the Discord so that you can see it, and also like our patrons who are listening can see it. But I was like, is there a function, or is this oh. the kind of thing where it's really just about the aesthetic? You know what? It looks kind of like a weird exhibit at a modern art museum. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> right. But no, that's just like those jeans are so stiff that you can like balance them upright. So Connor looked it up, but I think he then promptly forgot. When you starch clothes, the dirt sticks to, if you like then get them dirty, the dirt sticks to the starch and it doesn't uh, absorb into the fabric. So it doesn't stain, like your clothes don't stain. Right. Because then you can just wash them and the starch washes out and it takes the stain with it instead of leaving it on there. So you can see why like that would be, that would like gain traction and be super popular with like cowboys, right? Who are like right. out in like the dust and the dirt all day. Yeah. How do you do it? I think you have to get some starch. Okay, Leah, I'm reading it here. Mix one cup of water with one or two tablespoons of cornstarch in a spray bottle. This kind of makes sense though, because like you put cornstarch on something like when you fry it to make it crispier, right? So like, yeah. you put yeah. cornstarch in your jeans to make them crispier when you wash them. Anyway, Conmore, yes. throwing it over to you for the second fashion fact, which uh, is your anecdote. Right. Uh, so I found a really great polo at Goodwill today, which uh, I believe was a promotional <laughs> item for the Final Fantasy VII remake. Okay. <laughs> and I was excited about this, both because I thought it looked cool and it was in my size, but also I knew it would really bother my friend Tyler. Who's been on this podcast and, in fact, made the theme music for it? He did, indeed, and all the little state, all the little interstitial sounds too. Yeah. So, can you describe the front and the back of the of the polo? Yeah. So, on the front, it this has like the little classic left, you know, breast logo. Sure. Yeah. Uh, kind of small on there, and then on the back, it's like the large, like full back logo of you know Final Fantasy VII remake, and then underneath it says you know release date. March 3rd, 2020 or whatever it was. Right. So 
it really seems like it came from somebody who like worked on the game or worked on its release or something like that. <laughs> yeah, or it's like a promotional item. I was excited about the shirt, but also I was excited. I like I as soon as we got home, I put it on and took some photos and sent them yeah. to Tyler, who was blessed me with just like some very like indignant <laughs> can uh, you, texts. Can you read the text that Tyler sent you? <laughs> yeah, sure. He just uh, said no, 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 not allowed. Send it back. Stolen valor. Uh, I, be- <laughs> I bet you didn't even know it's the game's birthday. Uh, to which I replied, hmm, doesn't seem like it's the 3rd of March to me. Wow, so he's extremely upset with you owning this shirt. Sometimes we have to just bother our friends. <laughs> it's true. Ellie gets it. And also, it's just a sick fit. It, uh, you know, it looks good on me, I think. so. Oh, it does. Yeah. It looks very good on you, baby. I'm very happy for you. And I'm. are you wearing it right now? Uh, no, I'm not. I'm wearing oh. the uh, burnt orange... <laughs> Like, you don't have to tell them what you're wearing. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Look, inquiring <laughs> minds want to know. Just in case anyone's curious. <laughs> Chelsea. Yeah. What am I wearing? No, what, so a, what you... are you wearing? And then B, what is the title of your topic? I am also wearing a cute shirt I got at Goodwill. It's pink and it's uh, ribbed, which is very in. And then I'm wearing like little Sophie shorts. I'm very comfy. Good. Uh, RIP and peace to Sophie. And then my topic, which this is, okay, so this is going to be fun. In a little bit of like a departure from the way we typically do our topic uh, titles, the title in itself is not a mystery. Right. But the title presents a mystery that I want you guys to speculate on that the topic is going to be. Ooh, it asks a question of me? Right. Am I being asked a question right now? You're going to be asked, like, in a way you're going to be asked a question with this title. And the title is what the topic is about. But your speculation should be how and why. Okay, okay. Ready? Yeah. How Hobby Lobby funded ISIS. Oh. Oh no. Okay. Um. Interesting. Because here's my thing. Initially, right out of the gate, I'm thinking that they didn't mean to. Uh, or is it on purpose? I'm, I mean, that's part of the speculation, isn't it? It might be, and uh, we'll, we're going to get into all of it. It it seems as though perhaps they just simply did not care if mm, they funded ISIS interesting. or not. So it's not through sort of any sort of zealous religious ideas uh, about causing the apocalypse. Right, they did not seek out to like false flag ISIS. I see. Okay, just through sheer sort of corporate global <laughs> negligence, more or less. All right, uh, it's like very much in the energy of like that Nathan for You episode where he like builds the robot to take his pants off in front of children, where he's like, <laughs> something might happen here tonight, and if it does, so what? Horrid, <laughs> absolutely awful news. <laughs> I mean, I know that they're bad, right? Obviously. Yeah, they're like, not good. Very homophobic and a, just a strange company all around. Connor, do you have any speculation about how Hobby Lobby funded ISIS? Uh, do they just give them money? <laughs> y- yes. Do they write well, them a check? <laughs> yeah, in a way. We'll get into all of it. Ellie, that, what are you wearing that, and what's your title? That is how funding works. <laughs> God, baby, you're so smart. Thanks. I'm wearing a wearable sleeping bag <laughs> that zips down for the arms and your legs um, because I decided that I didn't want to be perceived after eating all of that McDonald's. That's fair. And my topic is called The Strange Afterlife of the Most Famous Brain. <gasps> okay. Is it about like Albert Einstein's brain like being put on display or something like that? Very close. Ugh. Very close. Furious. Conmore. Um, not, okay, so is it not Albert Einstein? I will. It is Albert Einstein. I will give you that. It is Albert Einstein. Yes. Do you know what happened to his brain? They gave it to ISIS, right? They gave it to ISIS. Hobby Lobby <laughs> sold it to ISIS. Fuck! Oh no. Imagine what they could accomplish. <laughs> I know. Ugh. So I'll go first. Here we go. Oh my god. Okay, so this is the wild and wonderful story of how Hobby Lobby may or may not have funded ISIS. Allegedly, do not sue uh, us. Don't have, sue us. We have no money. I cannot stress this. Please enough. take it back. 
Okay. <laughs> I said allegedly. Yeah. So no, this story has been in the news since like 2017, which is amazing because it's just a testament to like how bad things have been and how much stuff has been going on. That like the most recent headlines about the story that we will talk about are from three days ago and just like sixth priority at best, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> from everything else. As a little bit of background, Hobby Lobby, yes, a giant like craft store chain. The family, it's owned by one family, the Greens, and they're billionaires. It gets like, it's like an average, like a profit margin of like $3 billion per year. Huge successful. They give half of their pre-tax earnings away to evangelical causes. Right. Super, super religious. They're also, other than being billionaires and the thing we're about to talk about, the other thing that they're the most famous for is that they won a Supreme Court case uh, recently, I believe during the Trump administration, mm. striking down the part of the Affordable Care Act that said that employers, as part of like uh, offering you health insurance, had to offer women contraception. So, no, not that they had to like fund your like abortion or you know termination of pregnancy due to like medical stuff, which is already something that's like very dicey with a lot of things, but they went one step further and said that they shouldn't have to give you contraception. So birth control. Um, yeah, which was a real bummer because there's even beyond the fact that like birth control is not the same thing as abortion and abortion. You can also argue is not an issue either, but even beyond all those things, there's a lot of women who are on birth control because it's a form of hormone therapy and it doesn't even have anything to do with contraception. So yeah, real bummer, but they won that, so they don't have to do it. That is maybe the most famous part of their activism, but it is actually just the most public part because they actually fund with that half of their pre-tax earnings that they uh, give away. A lot of it is actually to, it's not charities, although they call themselves charities, but they're actually political action committees. Mm. And they go out and they lobby on behalf of the government to do things like sanctity of marriage laws that say marriage is for one man and one woman only. And real sketchy things around abortion, like forcing women to have ultrasounds, which can be really traumatic in like the cases of rape or birth defect to oh, force gosh. them to like listen to their baby's heart or lack thereof. So yeah, not super cool, a little sketchy. Right. But here's what's really fun. <laughs> About 10 years ago, they announced that they had this new big project that they were funding and it was going to be the Museum of the Bible and it was going to be in Washington, D.C. And the way that they kind of pitched it, even though a lot of people were understandably very skeptical about this because of, you know, all of their money and political lobbying, like we mentioned, but they said that the idea was that it should stand alongside all of the other kind of like history and natural science museums that are available in D.C., but like as a history of Christianity and Judeo-Christian anthropology, essentially. Right. So this is what they're going to do. So to this end, uh, they are already massive collectors of like any kind of like Christian paraphernalia, but they really ramp it up and they start buying. I mean, we're talking in the thousands, tens of thousands of like, quote unquote, Christian artifacts, which are mostly coming from the Middle East. Like cups? Uh, What are you talking? What is it? So I'm glad you asked. There's a lot of things. One is they're looking a lot for tablets. So they're looking for basically... Oh, you love... They love a tablet. They love a tablet, like a clay tablet. And in fact, clay tablets are what originally got them in trouble. Or got them flagged by... Yeah, it's... Oh, it's gosh, or the clay tablet. (laughs) There's a lot of spooky stories that start or end with a clay tablet. (laughs) But basically, they're looking for... And this part, like, as somebody who was raised religious or raised like Christian, I get this. What they're trying to do is they're trying to find like evidence of Christianity that like when something is that old, you know, you want like stuff from like when Jesus was born, not just because it feels good to you as somebody who follows Jesus to see it, but because you want to be like, look, like this was a real person. This was a real religious leader in his time. And here are all these like, but here's all this compelling evidence around his teachings and his uh, ministry. So that's what they're looking for. Not really thinking about the fact that, like, if those things actually showed evidential proof of what the Bible claims, then people would have probably done that already. Well, so 
Yes. So, <laughs> uh, like no one's thought of fact, this. Those things would ex- those things already exist, and that is kind of the that is inherently the problem, right? In uh, hoarding these types of artifacts, is that they do they don't just spring out of thin air. They do belong to someone, right? So. <laughs> So they start they start collecting all these items. Every once in a while, I think there's like a bowl or like an item that would be worthy of display. But for every like one of those things, we're talking again, we're talking like hundreds to thousands of scraps of papyrus. I see. Clay tablets. Okay. Like anything that might be text. Here's where they fucked up. They had a, basically a score, if you will, that they were trying to get through customs that was coming from the Middle East. And it was thousands of these clay tablets, but they declared it to U.S. Customs as just clay tiles. And they said it was worth $300, like the total of the score. What? Oh, that's cheeky. Like Mr. Hobby yeah. Lobby was like, nothing to see here. Yeah, no, it's just it's just some $300 clay tiles. Like, don't even worry about it. I'm but because of the pool. size. <laughs> yeah, because of the size of the of the score that was coming through customs. And the like basically the discrepancy between the sheer amount of things they were declaring and the very low price that they had put for it, it automatically flagged an FBI like audit of oh, it. Oh, you idiot. So then the FBI started investigating. This is back in like 2016. And it was a four-year investigation, during which time the FBI seized tens of thousands of artifacts oh from the gosh. Green family. And it turns out it's super widespread because like we said, there was cuneiform tablets. Uh, mm-hmm. There were Babylonian and Syrian artifacts, and the, it went all the way to several colonial era and American, like Christianity related objects that had uh, the term is unreliable provenance, which basically means that they can't prove the Greens can't prove that they got them from like a reputable source. Okay. <laughs> so when it comes to artifacts that came from the Middle East, this is why it gets really dicey. In that region, the number one purveyor of artifacts is the Islamic State. They basically, that's like the huge part of how they get their money. As soon as they started seizing territory in like, you know, the 2010s from Iraq and Syria and like other parts of the Levant, they basically, they turned this into their industry. So what they do is they straight up own or they own or control almost 5,000 archaeological sites across uh, the Iraq and Syrian regions. Uh, So in the sites that they control, they control the entire selling process. Wasn't there that whole thing in like 2016, 2017, where ISIS would like destroy a bunch of ancient sites? Yes. Is that what, so they were like destroying these sites and taking the artifacts and selling them? Yes. Oh. Destroying is like a complicated term, right? Right. So in some of them, they were, you know, like raising buildings that they were, that were, um, you know, Judeo-Christian or like what, like not part of like their Islamic vision. Right. And, but even in the cases where they would destroy things, they would then sell the stuff off, right? Because it's a huge profit. Yeah. Because it's a huge profit center, especially when you're selling it to like the infidels, Mm -hmm. but even in, and so, yeah, they control like almost 5,000 sites, but even in the sites that they don't control, they charge looters who have to get a signed permission from the Islamic state, uh, a fifth of the sale. So if you basically, if you want to go to any archeological site in like the region controlled by the Islamic state or like where they have a presence, basically, you will be giving them money one way or the other. It doesn't matter. And if you try to not do that, if you try to not sell it, they will kill you. Oh, so if you're like, actually, second thoughts, I'm not so hot on this anymore. Right. So when it comes to did any of like the tens of thousands of artifacts that the Greens took from that region that they bought... Did any of them directly fund ISIS? It's impossible to say, but it's incredibly likely. Oh. Uh, the reason it's impossible to say is because, again, just like any other sort of black market enterprise, which this was, we do know that because that's why they had to give it all back because it had, quote unquote, by their own admission, unreliable provenance, meaning <laughs> they couldn't prove that they had bought it from a reputable seller. We didn't do anything um, wrong, but I can't prove where I, I can't got prove this. It, I don't so have I am the receipts. Give it back. <laughs> yeah. So in any of these cases, you're seeing monies change hands like at least five or six times. So it's like 
you get it from an auction in Belgium who gets it from a guy in Lebanon who gets it from a guy in Syria who gets it from a guy from the Islamic State or or something like that, right? It's always like a guy, a guy, a guy, a guy, a guy, which is Mm -hmm. why it's impossible to trace. However, UNESCO has what they call the bright line rule, which is accepted by the international art community, which basically says you should not deal in antiques that do not have a provenance, meaning a paper trail, before 1970. If it appears after 1970 on the market, it's safe to assume that it came through like illegitimate means. Okay. So when you take those two things into account, that it's impossible to trace, that when things come onto the market after 1970, it's a really good assumption. Uh, and you pair that with the sheer amount of artifacts. Again, we're talking about tens of thousands. Yeah. Seems like a safe assumption, but it is still alleged. Allegedly. <laughs> Here's my most favorite part, though, in case you were like, well, Chelsea, are you really being fair to like these good old greens? Hobby Lobby didn't do nothing to nobody. <laughs> Let me just say, while the FBI was investigating the greens, this woman that is the lead professor like studying antiquity at Notre Dame, and okay. she's writing a book about Hobby Lobby and the Greens like activism and their weird hoarding of like Christian artifacts. Yeah. So she went to interview Steve Green because she's been working on this book for years. She went to interview Steve Green, who is like the current like currently runs Hobby Lobby for the family. Okay. About the investigation. And this was his on the record quote. And when they asked, like, if you have illicit antiquities, he said, uh, yeah, it's possible. <laughs> He said that, like, basically what's done is done and it's the cost of doing business. So when you were like, did they do it on purpose? I'm like, well, (laughs) I don't think that they set out to fund ISIS. But again, much like Nathan Fielder and the like sex crime robot, it's like something happens here. So what? So what? This is the cost of the of my vision of the Museum of the Bible. Right. So back to the Museum of the Bible. Ultimately, the investigation found that, yes, that they had tens of thousands of items with unreliable provenance. They were fined $3 million and they were ordered to return several thousand artifacts, including over 8,000 clay tablets to the Museum of Iraq and over 5,000 various artifacts, including papyrus and tablets, to the Egyptian government, who had been lobbying for them to return it since 2016. Basically, when they figured out that it was the Greens that had all this stuff, because as you know, Egypt is very much in a place of like, hey, all of this is ours. Yeah, can we have this stuff back? back? Uh, But it took the FBI being like, now Greens. Come on, guys. you weren't... You know, you weren't supposed to take that. And they're like, oh, okay. but it does bring it back to the Museum of the Bible, because this is what I think is kind of spooky. The Museum of the Bible, if it were really doing what they stated, I don't actually I think is kind of an interesting idea for a museum, because regardless of like your feelings or like your faith or like thereof, it's impossible to ignore the fact that Christianity has had a profound impact on the world. Right. Like socioculturally, politically architecturally, archaeologically for thousands of or over a thousand years. Artistically, right. Profound impact, huge, essentially col- like colonizer religion, right? Mm-hmm. So the idea of having a museum that traces that actually I think is, is fairly interesting. Right. But it's clear, like I said, if you remember at the beginning of my topic, I talked about how it's the artifacts from the Middle East that they've primarily been told to give back. But those aren't the only illicit artifacts that they were found to be in possession of. They also had specific interest in artifacts that tied Christianity to America. Oh, and I of think, course. Of course they did. Right. So what I feel like they were, when you put all these pieces together, right? Like if you're like Steve from Blue's Clues and you have your notebook <laughs> and you're just writing these three things out, the museum is in Washington, D.C. They want all these artifacts from like the sort of the dawn of Christianity. And they want all these artifacts that tie Christianity to America. It really paints this picture of this sort of like, American providence, right? Mm-hmm. Like that America is the promised land for, let's be real, white Christians. Yep. That you can trace like this sort of logical thorough line from the dawn of Christianity. This is how we to got Amer- here to this modern America. Land. Yeah. And this is the promised land. Uh, and it's real spooky. And I'm it glad is. that they weren't allowed to do it. And as the final bit of karma, I think is really interesting. And this just came out very recently. The 
crowning, like the crown jewel in the collection at the Museum of the Bible, something that they were not, that were, that was not part of this investigation that they did not have to give back was that they had original fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls on display. (laughs) And yeah, which if you're not familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were found in the Dead Sea and they contain, well, there's thousands of them, but like they contain, among other things, some of like the, I believe it's the second oldest. Yeah. Extant, extant copy of like the Hebrew, uh, like the Old Testament. Massively so, impactful to apologetics within Christianity. What's So what's an apologetic? So apologetics is essentially sort of philosophical, scientific, historic, archaeological. It's kind of what you're saying, like trying to find evidence that tracks with what the Bible says and the times and the places. And like, it's, it, you know, it's trying to prove the case of the Bible through what we can find or deduce. And so the Mm -hmm. Dead Sea Scrolls gave a limitation to how the documents had been adapted over time, which is obviously a huge criticism of the Bible is that like translations and it being passed down and retranslated, the Dead Sea Scrolls showed there's a huge lack of difference between like, like you said, like the second oldest copy of uh, the book of Daniel or whatever it is and the ones that we have now. Well, guess what? What? Their Dead Sea Scrolls that they had on display in the museum for three years starting from the beginning, that was the crown jewel, uh, were fake. (laughs) And they didn't know. (laughs) And they didn't know until just now. And they had to take them down and issue an apology. (gasps) Oh, that's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's not because it means that probably some dodgy geezers profited off of it, but... Yeah, I mean, I guess if it's like in my dream scenario, it was like one dude and uh, Hobby Lobby like killed his mom and he like (laughs) swindled the greens out of like tens of millions of dollars. That Uh, is good. And he donated it to like the ACLU or something. And I know that's like 150% not what happened, but it's like just it's what I'm going to cling to. Yeah, it's nice Uh, to imagine that. Yeah. So anyway, so that is the story of how Hobby Lobby... May or may not, but almost probably certainly did. May or may not, but almost certainly did. Whoa. God, it is that like American evangelical exceptionalism weird. Yes. Of like, well, this was always supposed to come to America. Right. Well, I'm like the Greens are like modern colonizers, right? Like they're not go. I mean, I already have my feelings. We don't need to get into about like certain ministries going out to like yeah different countries but even beyond that like there is something that's like sort of like like a modern colonizer about like going to countries where you don't have any roots and taking all of their artifacts and being like i don't really care who i pay for this or like how shady it is i want these things and i feel like i should have them right because i have a connection to what i yeah what they're supposed to be about Right, like they don't need to be in the Iraqi Museum of like natural history because they're non-believers. They need to be with me because I get it, and they're in the me. land of freedom. Yeah, Kano, what'd you think? What's the scores on the doors? I thought I was waiting until the end. Oh, well, you can do that. No, we could take it oh, into a different. You can direction. totally do that. Okay, cool. Wow, way to break the norm. I love that. I love that. Okay, are you guys ready to hear the strange afterlife of the most famous brain? Yes. So you guessed correctly, Chelsea, we're talking about Albert Einstein. I learned this today. This was a classic topic that came from researching something else about another topic, and then I was like, wait, what? And then I had to go down this (laughs) rabbit hole. You know what I mean? I love those. Yeah, it's always a fun time. So Albert Einstein, we all know him. We all love him. (laughs) We've seen a picture of him sticking his tongue out. We've read the fake letter, the chain letter that's like, and that kid's name was that Albert Einstein. <laughs> yes, we've all read that. So before Albert Einstein died in 1955, he told his family that he didn't want to be studied. But just hours after he died, a medical examiner stole his brain <laughs> for research. <laughs> this is so creepy. This was the strange How- afterlife. How do you steal a brain? Or are we going to get into that? Well, he's the examiner. We are going to get into that, but... He just took it. So Albert Einstein rushed to hospital in 1955, and he knew that he was at the end of his life. He'd already had this condition. He had an abdominal aortic aneurysm, and he'd had one before, but he just just knew. He was like, my time is is over. He was 76 years old. he was old. old. Yeah, 76 years old. Obviously, a very famous German physicist. And he said... 
with all the clarity in the world that he would not like to receive any medical attention. <laughs> it's just like, I'm donezo. In fact, he said, it's like a quote, I go, I want to go when I want. It is tasteless to prolong life artificially and I've done my share and it's time to go. <laughs> I have a question just like, real quick. Badass, yeah. I mean, I think it's going to be maybe part of it, but I guess like I want it as, I want to get it known up front that I don't know the answer to this okay. in case it's relevant. Okay. Something I've always kind of wondered about is like the sort of like cultural idea of Einstein as being synonymous with genius. Did that, is that something that like built over time after his death or was he regarded while he was alive and like actively oh. working the same way that we think about him now? Correct. He was regarded as, as when he was like a, a celebrity. Okay. Yeah. He has sort of a completely unparalleled legacy in terms of like physicists go. He was, he had become like kind of like a, an icon of the 20th century, like in a war kind Elon of way. He was Elon Musk of the early 20th century. He really was. Horrible. He was horrible. Like- <laughs> horrible, Connor. That might get you banned from this podcast. I can't believe you just I said that. You. After I invited you on here. I can't believe I have to talk about Elon Musk. realize that that's going to get clipped and put on some like nasty, like Elon Musk simp subreddit. <laughs> I'm sorry, Ellie. You're fine. No, you're fine. He had like, he has kind of a mad story. Like he escaped Nazi Germany right at the right time. Apparently he was so revered that just hours after his death, his brain was stolen from his corpse and remained stashed away in a jar in a doctor's home for a really long time. So I'll tell you, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll dive into a little bit of history about old Einstein because I kind of like was realizing as I was looking up the story that I obviously know who Einstein is and I know E equals MC squared, but I didn't really know anything much about him as a person. Mm-hmm. He was born in March in 1879 in Germany. And before he developed and wrote about all the things that we now know him about, the, basically the theory of general relativity, in his life, he told the story about two wonders that deeply affected him when he was little. The first one being when he f- first ever saw a compass. Uh, he was five years old and it like inspired this lifelong fascination with forces of the world that we can't see. And then apparently he had a geometry book when he was 12, which he adoringly called his sacred little geometry book. So he was obviously like kind of a weirdo from an early age, but quite sweet. Loved science. Just (laughs) loved science. But his teachers told him when he was young that he would amount to nothing. Like apparently he was pretty slow to learn how to talk and was like an average to above average student, pretty good at math, but like nothing like this kid's a genius, right? This guy's going to change the face of physics as we all know it. And actually he got rejected into every university he applied to. Damn, dude. Yeah. And that kid's name? Albert Einstein. <laughs> Albert Einstein. <laughs> and when he was 21, he renounced his Jew- his German citizenship and moved to Switzerland. And basically he worked as sort of teaching, tutoring maths and was a technical expert at the patent office. So he didn't didn't go straight onto a science track. <laughs> but through what he was doing and what he was working on, he just got more and more curious about electricity and physics and how all of it works. And so he managed to get in and graduate from the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology, but didn't receive a research position. Like he wasn't kept on. Again, there was nothing like that seemed super amazing about his ability or his like things that he knew about physics. After just years of tutoring children, he would formulate theories about the universe in his spare time and essentially came up with everything that like threw him into fame while he wasn't teaching math. The things that we now know about or take for granted in terms of how we think about physics that he came up with was like, firstly, that light can only be emitted at very discrete wavelengths, which kind of formed the core of quantum mechanics. (laughs) And in another paper, he explained some strange things that electromagnetic forces do with bodies in motion, which is basically how we eventually got to nuclear power. And then he wrote another paper, which was like titled, Does the Inertia of a Body Depend Upon Its Energy Content? And that first published E equals MC squared, which now obviously is synonymous with him, his name and his legacy. In 1921, he won the Nobel Prize because of all these papers that he'd written. He was admitted to the Prussian Academy of Sciences and worked there pretty uh, like in relative sort of obscurity throughout world war one originally the physics community completely kind of ignored him until his general theory of relativity was published and then bam kind of overnight he was spirited around the globe as this like amazing thinker and met every like rubbed elbows in academics and like met hollywood celebrities and became this kind of cultural icon figure until 1932 
when Germany held an election that left the Nazis as the largest single party in the Reichstag. Uh-oh. Yeah. Cool. Immediately, Einstein resigned all of his German posts and asked for asylum in the United States. And this, he was like, there's no way this is going to go well. <laughs> this is not going to go well for me. The strengthening Nazi movement had already branded all of his theories as Jewish physics and denounced his work. Um, oh. Yeah, and tried to discredit everything that he'd done. And so he was like, fuck this. But the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton University welcomed him. And so that's how he managed to come to America and escape Nazi Germany. Pretty much, and he worked there. He worked in Prince, at Princeton University uh, for the next twenty years before, until he died. He spent his whole time there. So, on his final day, Einstein was uh, writing a speech for a television appearance where he was going to commemorate the state of Israel's seventh anniversary. And as he was doing that, he had this abdominal aortic aneurysm, which is a condition where like your main blood vessel kind of explodes. And he had so, like mm-hmm. I said, he had it before and had it repaired in nineteen forty eight. But this time he refused surgery. He was very, very, very specific to his family and to the doctors that he did not want his body tested on for science. He did not want his brain tested for science. Like he wanted to be left alone and not cut up and dissected as, you know, this like physicist genius. Just leave me alone. (laughs) And on the day that he died, Princeton Hospital was apparently like utterly mobbed with journalists and people mourning. It was complete chaos. There are like some pretty kind of iconic photographs of um, Albert Einstein's home, which was like another thing that he didn't want anyone going into his home. He didn't want anyone taking pictures of his family. He wanted everything to be left alone and just like be allowed to be a man who died. But no, like people got access to his house and took all these pictures. And eventually Hans Albert Einstein, who was his son, pleaded with Life magazine to respect his family's privacy and like get out of his house which they did, but not everyone involved with Albert Einstein's death honored his wishes. As hours after he passed, the doctor who performed the autopsy on the corpse of one of the world's most brilliant men removed his brain and took it home without the permission of Einstein's family. This guy's name was Dr. Thomas Harvey, and he was convinced that, like, despite Einstein's wishes, his brain needed to be studied as he was one of the most intelligent men in the world. Even though Einstein had written out instructions to be cremated upon death, apparently this guy was very persuasive and ultimately his son Hans gave Dr. Harvey his blessing, as he evidently also believed, like, that they should study the mind of this genius. But because he did that, Dr. Thomas Harvey lost his job at Princeton Hospital. So... (laughs) So he took he took Einstein's brain to Philadelphia, cut it into 240 pieces and preserved it <gasps> in celloidin, which is a sort of like hard rubbery form of cellulose. And he would like he like slice it? Yeah, he cut it up. He carved it into 240 oh, pieces so and he sent creepy. some of it out to different to different doctors to test. Just when you think this can't get any weirder. After Harvey's <laughs> wife threatened to dispose of the brain, he returned to retrieve it and took it with him to the Midwest. For a time, he worked as a medical supervisor in a biological testing lab in Wichita, keeping the brain in a cider box stashed under a beer cooler. Then he moved again to Missouri and practiced medicine while trying to study the brain in his spare time, only to lose his medical license in 1988 after failing a three-day competency exam. He then relocated to Lawrence in Kansas, took an assembly line job in a plastic extrusion factory, moved into a second floor apartment next to a gas station and befriended a neighbor, the beat poet William Burroughs. The two men routinely met for drinks on Burroughs' front porch, and Harvey would tell him stories about having Einstein's brain, about cutting off chunks of it and sending it to researchers around the world. Apparently, he would boast to visitors that he could have a piece of Einstein anytime he wanted. Wow. That's right. fucking weird sort of is like that? Cutting off little bits and like nibbling on them or whatever. Oh, I mean, he probably was like smelling them. Like, yeah. mm, such an amazing brain. If you're like that kind of person that you really think that like, I don't know, like that you're going to somehow figure out how to be that exceptional in like the curves of his brain or something. I, it's not that far of a leap to then become one of those people that's like, and then when I grind it into powder and snort it up my nose, then I'll really be the smartest. Well, get this. You know? He thought oh, no. that a, gr- a great idea was to send a piece of Einstein's brain to his granddaughter in the 90s as a gift. That's so weird. <laughs> I don't like that at all. In 1985, he and I guess some like other mad collaborators that he had managed to convince in California published a first study of Einstein's brain, claiming that it had abnormal proportion of two types of cells, neurons and things called glia. 
Mm-hmm. And then that study was followed by five others reporting additional differences in individual cells or like particular parts of the brain. Their whole idea was like by studying Einstein's brain, we can uncover the neurological underpinnings of intelligence of like what makes a person intelligent, where or if intelligence is stored. Like how does that work with knowledge? Like not the idea of like knowledge, but of like just smartness that Einstein's brain could like rec- uncover these secrets. Mm-hmm. But um, this guy called Terence Hines, who's a professor of psychology at Pace University, says the premise is nonsense. The studies are bunk. <laughs> <laughs> you think it's all positively bunk? Absolutely bunk. Here's the thing, though, and here's how smart Einstein was: was that he understood all too well the public's obsession with him, the obsession with celebrity and specialness. He knew that if given the chance, scientists would pour over his brain's neurons and glia and the sulky and the, all the other bits of the that make up a brain and make these sort of grand pronouncements about what makes a genius. And he knew that it would be complete bullshit, which is why he said, just don't fucking bother. What a waste of time. And I will round it out by saying, perhaps the case of Einstein's brain can be summed up in this quote he once scrawled across the blackboard of his Princeton University office, which was, not everything that counts can be counted and not everything that can be counted counts. And that is the story of the uh, special afterlife of the most famous brain. That's oof. Isn't that weird. Well, there's like mental guys stashed a brain in a jar, ran away, and then spent the next couple of years carving it up and sending it around the country and achieved nothing as a yeah. result of it. Well, it also just like it gets real into like all of that kind of dicey area of like certain people are, you know, built smart or whatever. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's it's a again, like a really short like hop, skip and leap over to some like dicey eugenic shit. Oh, yeah. Of like <laughs> There must be something different about this man's brain because he knew things about physics and so if we study it we can figure out what makes a person smart and then maybe we can reverse engineer it yeah Yeah, we can start cutting people's brains to be smart shaped we can just give you a little wafer of einstein's brain (laughs) and then you'll get physics it's i mean it's also so funny because it's like such an obviously like goofy like superstitious thing to do yeah like it's this like the brain became like this magic talisman for him right in Uh, the 1980s yeah right (laughs) yeah i guess i just still can't get over like sending like a child like here's like a sliver of like a man who died like decades before you were born's brain you're welcome you're welcome uh sometimes i like to think about just to bring everything real circle yeah i just think about like what size mamba's brain must be like i think it must be like the size of like like a little acorn tiny little walnut yeah like a little walnut brain yeah, his brain, like slices of his brain, are on display at the Mutter Museum in Philadelphia, um, oh, and there. there are they're like little slices in between those like those two like glass panes like that that scientists do. <laughs> I've been to the Mutter Museum, and the Einstein brain slices didn't really make an impression. I guess. Oh, you didn't. You didn't ponder over the little slices of smart brain no because they also have just like a dick and a pussy in jars next to each other so like that was much more attention grabbing <laughs> sure sure that probably that probably was taking up most of your attention and <laughs> yeah oh for sure they're just sitting in jars next to each other that is so bizarre oh it's a very gruesome museum would absolutely recommend <laughs> <laughs> but it is like you said, like she, he, it kind of became this weird, like obsession and almost like a curse to him because, like, he ended up losing his job, his marriage, and eventually his medical license because of this brain. So both of our stories had like sort of like weird little like codas of karma. Yeah, you give the brain back, dude. Yeah, don't take people's brains when they specifically asked you not to. Yeah, that's fucked up. All right, Connor, it's your time to shine. Okay. Well, I just want to say to both contestants, uh, the stories were great. Thank you. Um, but, you know, like, I I have, like, personal relationships involved here, and I right. should try you to... You better only have one personal relationship involved here. Well, I, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying, like, there, I have, like, yeah. biases based on, like, my, you know, personal life. Of course, uh, yeah. Which I should, I as a judge, ignore. Yes, um, for Correct. the purposes of like this show, right? Otherwise, well, we appreciate otherwise you, you make a mockery them. of our show, sir. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I was gonna say I should do that, but I'm not going to. And Chelsea right. wins. 
Okay, great. How much does Chelsea win you by? Do have, you do have to give points. Well, oh, you could just uh, tell me a difference they... and I'll add it to last week. Okay. How much does Chelsea win by, Connor? Put a number to it, if you care. Uh, she wins by eight. Eight? Yeah. Eight? Some of you heard him. Wait, is that a ladder? Don't little? worry about it, Connor. Well, it Connor, doesn't matter. You're doing it doesn't great. matter, dude. That's how this you're game doing amazing. works. So I get zero, and Chelsea gets eight. <laughs> and so, oh, oh Ellie, you get zero. I think you, you get one so point, good. and Chelsea gets nine points. I okay. Oh my All right. god. Okay, Chelsea gets nine, and I get one. I'll take one. It, that is terribly unfair, want... and I will make Miles do this next week to even the deal. I was just gonna say you should just ask Miles to do it. And next I'm like, week. here. The thing is. We're gonna get to get into the space where like this show is much more about the background politics that get us points. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sure everyone would hate that. People hate schemes. Oh, so... you hate a scheme. Yeah, yeah. People hate schemes and they hate like hearing about schemes. What yeah, if we get to the point? Lore. I maybe at one point on this show, I'm gonna pay someone to pretend to be my friend to come on and give me more points than you. But you know, Ellie, you won't so know sad. which one is fake. I know well, all I'm your friends. I'm not saying that I, I don't. I do have friends. I know. <laughs> I'll just pay one of them. I'll be like, and I hey, and I know which friends are. I'll give you. 50 oh yeah, Christina would definitely do it if you paid her. But now that you've said that, I will be paying Christina more money. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Why do I tell you my plans? <laughs> that does seem like a fundamental error on my part and my judgment. There. Uh, anyway, mm. um. Uh- Thank you so much for being on this episode with us and for judging our stories ever so harshly. Uh, yeah, it's been great. Thanks for having me. Connor, where can people find you if they're interested? Because Connor, as well as being a, a, a podcaster in the making, uh, is a very awesome illustrator oh, and yeah, cartoonist. Comics. Yeah, you can read some comic strips on Instagram uh, at cornershoe.comics with an X. Awesome. Thank you so much. Cornershoe.comix. Yes. And Chelsea, yeah. where can people <laughs> find you? People can find me at Chelsea Harfouche wherever internets are sold, uh, except up to and including TikTok, where I think you can still search me by Chelsea Harfouche, but my username is Thought Leader, like T H O T. Very good. So, Very strong. Uh, yeah, I was proud of it. <laughs> and I remain proud of it. Good. Eleanor. Uh huh. Where can people find you? Oh my gosh. You can find me at Ellie Main on Instagram and at Ellie Maney on Twitter. And you can find this podcast at WhatPod on Twitter and Instagram, Facebook, and Redbubble. Our Patreon is Those Two Girls. And our website is those two girls.club. If you sign up for our Patreon, then you can you have the opportunity to listen to us record live on a Sunday evening. It's tons of fun and it would be awesome to have uh, have you come and hang out with us and and hang out in the chat and be able to be a little more interactive with how we record this with you. Um, thank you so much for listening. And this week, I don't know, maybe go learn something. Keep it loose. Keep it tight. Say your present night. Decided to try something different. I liked it.